Hello and welcome to The One, a podcast about Sikh history, philosophy and culture. Hosted by Shabad Singh and produced by me, Rishwajit Singh. In this episode, we are joined once again by the great Suchitra Vijayan, director and founder of The Police Project, talking about CAA and NRC, India's new citizenship laws. These laws offer accelerated citizenship for specific minorities from specific countries, something which might end up fracturing the quote-unquote secular nature of the Indian democracy and open the doors to the establishment of a theocracy, an idea that underpins the actions of India's ruling party, the BJP. Shabad had a great interview with Chitra, but due to some technical issues, only about 20 minutes of it were properly recorded. I'll come back at the 20-minute mark and give you an update on the situation in India. As always, if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash the one podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash t-h-e-o-n-e podcast. Now, on with the show. Suchitra Vijayan, welcome once again, uh, returning champion to the one. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so uh, we're, you're on today. We, we want to talk to you about... Um, recent events uh, over the last unfolding over the last few months and uh, in India uh, around the the um, NRC and the CAA mm-hmm. uh, which are two citizenship or well they're related uh, uh, policies that have recently come into action that are um, creating a lot of unrest uh, in India and Maybe you can give us a little bit of background about what each of these uh, policies are and uh, what what they've done in effect since being enacted. Right. Um, I think what we really have to think about or talk about is these. There are a series of laws, and we really need to not look at them individually. Uh, they're problematic individually, but you have to look at them within a universe of laws. Um, in this case, it's the CAA, which is the Citizenship Amendment Act, and then the NRC, which is the National Register of Citizens. Uh, there's also one more, which is the NPR, which is the National Population um, Register. So let's start with CAA, because um, most of these protests that have kicked off have happened because of CAA. So what does CAA do? So CAA allows for immigrants from certain communities from Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan to acquire Indian citizenship. And the way the law has been pitched is that these are for specifically persecuted communities. But the problem with the CAA is that Muslims are excluded from acquiring citizenship solely on the basis of religion, which means that if it's a Hindu uh, refugee from Pakistan, he would then Uh, be on a way to citizenship. Similarly, if it's a Hindu from Bangladesh, if it's, you know, a Sikh from Afghanistan, all of these communities would be um, given, there's a a pathway to certain kind of naturalized citizenship, but Muslim communities are excluded from this. Um, And again, um, again, they define illegal immigrants. Um, By the way, the, (laughs) the idea that we're still using the word illegal immigrant is so problematic because No, human being is illegal. People might be documented, undocumented. But the way the law has been structured is that illegal immigrants um, are restricted only to these three countries. And again, 
they haven't looked at refugee populations from Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and Nepal. Um, so why is this problematic? It's problematic because India's constitution has always imagined itself as being a very secular constitution. This means that if you look at the preamble of the Indian constitution, there is no mention of class, caste, religion, hierarchy. It simply says, talks about equality and fraternity. Um, so what it really does, it introduces religion as the basis of citizenship. And that is how we should truly think about what is happening within the CAA and um, the NRC. Now, the problem is that the state, the BJP-led government, hasn't given us a real reason as to why only Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan. Um, and yet it doesn't say, um, while they claim that it protects persecuted minorities, for example, Tamils from Sri Lanka have been excluded, Rohingyas from Myanmar have been excluded, uh, Nepali Gorkhas have been um, excluded, so have the Ahmadis. So what you're really doing is not creating a legislation or a legal framework, because India is also not a signatory to the Refugee Convention. Instead, what you're really doing is that you're saying that all other minority communities from Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan can acquire citizenship except Muslims. Um, and now what is the NRC? NRC is the National Register of Citizens. And it was first implemented in the state of Assam, and it required people to produce legacy documents. Um, and legacy documents are documents that prove that their ancestors were eligible for citizenships or already are already citizens. Um, and then it's kind of this bureaucratic nightmare in which people are trying to prove uh, that they are citizens. Um, and often the citizens got excluded from the NRC. Uh, there were about 90 lakh applicants um, who were excluded from the final list. And again, you have to look at the and NRC has been only implemented in Assam. But now the BJP government says that NRC is going to be implemented throughout the country, which means that every wow. Indian citizen has to prove all over again that you're a citizen. And wow. now... If there are people who are who don't have these documentations, uh, which, which who are often going to be the poor, marginalized, undocumented, because India's vast majority of citizens are undocumented. For instance, my dad, who is a lawyer in the Supreme Court, doesn't have his birth certificate. So even India's elite huh. sometimes don't have the kind of documentations. Um, so what that means is that now if we create an underclass of people uh, who don't have documents. Now, the CAA is going to be used to give citizenship to those who are Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, but Muslims will be excluded. And we're already building eight detention centers throughout the country to house these people. So in effect, the NRC and CAA will create a kind of an exclusion list, which might also become a Muslim registry, and then we're already building detention camps. Of course, people have been having conversations about, oh, these, these are just detention camps. They are not internment camps. Um, but yeah, at this point in time, I don't think there's a difference. I have been to detention camps in Assam in 2018. Um, and trust me, I don't think there's a huge difference between detention yeah. camps and internment camps at this point in time. So... The uh, registry that, or the, the process that's happening right now where people are, it, it appears that people 
are rushing to find whatever documentation they do have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those who have no documentation, such as your father, uh, who even sits in the Supreme Court. Um, so what happens to those folks who may be undocumented or lacking documentation? Um, what happens to them if they are uh, like somebody like your father or let's say kind of an average person uh, in India who is not Muslim um, and who, who just was born in India, you know, their family's been there for whatever, however long, what happens to them? Um, I think we really, this is when India's class and caste and privilege and right. really comes into play. Um, you know, my grandfather was uh, domiciled in India when India even India was a British colony. My dad was born in the 1950s. So even if he doesn't have documentation as an upper caste, upper class male who's already reasonably well connected, he is going to be fine. Nobody's going to do right. anything with him. I think the communities that we really have to worry about are the ones who are of course, Muslim communities are ones that we have to worry about because we have to see this as the project of excluding Muslims. Uh, this is not the case of the, the undocumented migrants coming into, um, say, this is not the case of, say, Mexican undocumented immigrants coming into the United States. This is a process that is wholly different because Muslims are not undocumented immigrants to India. They are part of the Indian fabric. They are part of the nation's history. And you're trying to, you are trying to exclude them from what the nation state is. So yes, I think the communities most affected by it are going to be the marginalized ones. And within that, you're going to see double marginalized, double marginalization for Muslims. You're going to see that with Dalit communities. Uh, often Dalit communities are the ones who don't have access to land. Um, in India, because of the British colonial system, if you had, if you were a landowner, then access to land then gives you title documents. Um, production of documents then becomes possible. Um, and then, of course, women. Women, um, all of these exercises are deeply anti-women and children because women often are erased in the process of migration. Um, you know, uh, women change their names, they move. Um, so that's definitely a group that one has to look into. And in terms of documentation, um, what's really, you see multiple threads happening. In one place, there are people who are not who do not have the documents. They've lost the documents. They don't have access to it. On the other hand, um, there are communities that who have documents. And because a big part of all of this is going to be outsourced to the local bureaucracy, you're going to give the local bureaucrat immense power to accept or not accept this document. Um, So, for example, Kalyani Ramnath, uh, a legal uh, scholar um, of South Asia, has this thing where she did a lot of work in citizenship laws in Sri Lanka where she found that it's not that the, the those who are trying to prove their citizenship did not have documents. It's just that the mm. court actually did not believe these documents. And they right. were like, uh, oh, why were you having these documents from 25 years ago? So you must have planned for it for a really long time. Um, so I think there's, mm. you know, the bureaucracy, how bureaucracy treats someone who have, comes from a certain class, caste, privilege. I think these are all things that are going to play out. Um, and also you have the country's um, Adivasi populations that live in forests that don't have access to, that don't have documentation in, in real sense. Right. So what we're really looking for is 
a bureaucratic process that is going to deeply fragment the country. And it's going to push right. people to a point of um, absolute documentation nightmare. And so that so this opens up all kinds of abuses because it it seems to me that this almost codifies caste prejudice, caste class religious prejudice because it creates a basis. It all you know as as you said, folks who are uh, marginalized will have less opportunity to have access to mm-hmm. documents. Those people are marginalized because of the existing kind of caste and social structure of India. And so now there's like a, almost a law that's been, or there's a law that's been built that almost codifies it without necessarily naming it. So now you have, you have almost like the, you have the ability to makes me think of um, Salem witch trials where, you know, people, people in communities who don't like their neighbors, you know, might say, oh, you know, these people aren't documented or, or they're, I don't know if this is outlandish, but secret Muslims or, um, you know, things like that. Oh, I know, I, I know their real story and you can whip up a kind of froth against someone and take their land or take their, whatever they have going on. Um, so it can weaponize, I guess, the majority against against the minority or the perceived minority. Yeah, I mean, and you see this uh, playing out with the NRC in Assam, where um, I spoke to, this was in 2018, before NRC had actually become uh, a big news. And when I was still traveling in Assam, you saw this all the time, uh, the foreigners' tribunals that would unilaterally declare people as foreigners. Um, there are mm. instances where people were wrongly picked up. Um, you know, they were looking for um, a 46-year-old woman, but instead they picked up someone who was much younger, who had a very similar sounding name, and the family had to go through an ordeal of eight months just despite having documentation to get it back. Um, you have seen instances where, um, you know, people constantly talk about lawyers taking money and, and not really representing them. Uh, Rashmina Rabbeham, uh, one of the really well-documented cases was a was a pregnant woman who was taken to detention camp after she was um, after her name did not appear in the voters list. And then, you know, her lawyer takes the money, they submit all the documents, he does a really terrible job, and then they declare her a foreigner. And she doesn't even know that she's been declared a foreigner. And it's only when she goes to the court to figure out the status of her case that she finds out that she's been declared a, you know, a foreigner and immediately she's arrested. She was three months pregnant. Um, and finally, once she gives birth, the Supreme Court intervenes and then says, you know, she can, you can give her bail because she's a young mother and, you know, there's, there's a baby. But the point is that she still has no relief. And later she finds out that the reason why the Foreigners Tribunal declared her as uh, a foreigner was because there was a, uh, a clerical error um, on a certain date. You know, I think her birth date, the date of birth was, um, there's some kind of an error, a really small error that kind of, um, you know, has two different documents, has two different names, two different dates. And then that's the basis of declaring someone who was born and who's, who's lived in this country a foreigner. Um, another thing you have to understand is that almost everybody that I spoke to in Assam often spoke about moving multiple times. They moved because of the because of multiple massacres um, mm. that happened in Assam over the last forty years, 
they moved because of climate change. The water, their farmlands went underwater. Um, so this is a place where people are constantly moving and you're demanding that they have documentation to prove that this is who they are. And in some places, even if you did give them the document, um, for example, if Muhammad is spelt with a single M and a double M, and that's enough of a basis to exclude them from the National Register. So you've already seen all of this um, playing out in, in Assam. And the only difference is now this is going to be, because BJP is, is, is promised that implementing the NRC is going to be a nationwide process. So what we're really expecting is something, um, it's a nightmare that's just waiting yeah. to, um, yeah, uh, implode. Crystal, crystal knocked uh, kind of, Absolutely. Lead up to, yeah. Absolutely, yes. And again, this is not, you know, we are not, I mean, we're not, um, this is no longer alarmist territory. We are, we've seen this right. happen. We've seen, I was in JNU the night the students were attacked. Um, can, you talk, um, can we talk a little bit about that? And it, let me, let me ask you a couple of things. I want to, I want to hear about these, these moments of conflict and, uh, regrettably, of violence, but maybe we can talk a little bit first before before we move into kind of what's what has happened on the ground, and then what has the response been from protesters, and then of course the backlash against protesters. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know how does how does this clearly what's clear to us to be a monstrous law? We talked a little bit about sort of we talked about India's slide towards fascism under the BJP and and before that really um, in our previous discussion. But I would love like to understand, you know, so the BJP is the primary force behind this, but but how politically did this happen across India, and what is the um, kind of public-facing official narrative for this action? And what do you see as the actual motivations, structural motivations, political motivations um, behind it? And of course, ideological um, and how those go together. Right. Um, I mean, for me, you know, BJP is the most, um, it is the most, um, um, you know, virulent part of, you know, this ideology of hate. But it's it didn't start with BJP being, you know, coming to power. I mean, BJP has been working on this for a really long time. And in some ways, I think we also have to place it within the larger history of um, Congress's failure to actually be completely committed to ideas of secularism, ideas of justice and equality, and, and what happens in the aftermath of violence. And since the founding of the Indian Republic, what you see over and over again is, you know, through various legal judgments, through um, various <clears throat> acts of violence that unfold in the country, whether it's the Sikh massacres, whether it's, you know, violence against Muslims, Dalits, uh, women, this, this constant erosion of this secular idea of what India is. And, and that's been happening for a really long time. And I think what BJP does is it captures this <coughs> moment of great frustration and then transforms it into an ideology that can now mobilize millions of people. 
so this just didn't start with BJP. And again, BJP has been doing this in, for a really long time. You have to think about what happened with um, the Sikh massacres. You really have to think about this in terms of what they did with Ayodhya. So in that way, it's been building up to this for a really long time. Um, structurally, what are we thinking about is that the Hindu Rashtra is already here. I know that for me, when I listen to a lot of liberals um, talk about this is the fight for India's soul. Um, you know, on, on a good day, I just want to laugh because, you know, we've, we've been fighting, you know, it's, it's, it's not a death by knockout. This is death by a million lashes. Um, and I think India's battle for India's soul has been lost many times in smaller battles. And I think we have to be very, um, very, very, very cognizant of that. It was lost with Kashmir. It was lost many times with Kashmir. It was lost in the northeastern states when, um, you know, um, we started imposing, when I say we, uh, India started imposing uh, a very, a very colonialist idea of, of, of governance. Where Hi, it's Rashwajit again. As Chitra was saying, the current citizenship laws aren't a dramatic change of pace for India which has experienced a continuous erosion of civil liberties and democratic values. And arguably, from its inception, the Indian state has not represented the universal interest. This, however, is in contrast to the rhetoric used by the protesters in opposition to the current regime. Democratic constitutionalism is a very big part of the resistance, and the state is afraid so much so that they have arrested young people for reading the preamble of the constitution. Most notably in the case of Chandrasekhar Azad from Bhim Army, an Ambedkarite Dalit organization. Using the values enshrined in the constitution, singing the national anthem, using the Indian flag, all of these allow the protesters to show that their actions of dissent are not against the country or other people, as alleged by the government, but rather in their interest. Drawing a contrast between their true nationalism and the government's facade works great rhetorically in a country where nationalism is seen as a moral virtue. This also blunts the government's attack on people's loyalty and branding as quote-unquote anti-national, which, along with the colonial-era sedition laws, are used to lock up dissenting minorities. The government did not expect this resistance and has now backtracked from the pan-India NRC, at least in their public speeches. But apparently the other party members were not told this since they keep saying that the NRC will be coming soon and the National Population Register, which is the prerequisite for the NRC, is still underway. This is along with the fact that they have said that CAA would not be repealed under any circumstances. All of this show that they are committed to their vision of a theocratic India. The protests therefore will continue. We are in complete solidarity with protesters all across the country fighting for a truly secular India and against the fascist forces. There is a very popular string of arguments coming from liberals who do not see systemic issues and limit their analysis to individuals. If you want to learn what that is, the problems with such a narrow framework and the history of RSS in India, check out my video on YouTube at LeftClickTV. You can also find the link to the video in the description. Thanks to Suchitra for coming on once again. You can find her at Suchitra V on Twitter and The Polis Project at Polis underscore project. Finally, you can find this show at The One Pod. Thanks for listening. I leave you with the sound of protesters in India singing Fez's poetry. Oh,